0: So 1 Corinthians 15 and our opening text today will be 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 19. The title of our message is Resurrection or Bust, Resurrection or Bust. And so if you would read with me in 1 Corinthians 15, I will be reading from the uh, New International Version of the uh, Bible. I know some of you like the ESV, the, the especially special version, um, and, and so we, we, we want to make sure we cover both of those, so I shift back and forth. If you would read with me in verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, Lord, open our hearts to understand, our eyes to see, our ears to hear. May Christ be made manifest in our presence and our hearing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't worry, that's an absolutely adorable child. I will not be upset if he cries through this whatsoever. So, um, <clears throat> The Great Plains of the United States was struck with two great disasters in the 1930s, the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, as it is called. Many farmers were left with nothing but dust, not soil, just dust. They were starving, no way to make a living. Nothing would grow. To stay on their land was utter futility. Working the ground would end with ruin. Many of them packed all their possessions onto old trucks and headed west for California. Some made signs, California or bust. In other words, their life was subject to so much futility that they would rather risk everything to gain a better future. It is the same attitude that the Christian walks away from the empty tomb with, resurrection or bust. Eugene Peterson laments, quote, Existence as we experience it is a kind of chaos. Things happen with apparent unpredictability and in a disorderly way. Life is a constant struggle without this Uh, against this disorder. And so we attempt to impose some kind of order upon it. With our clocks and watches, our schedules and rules, the natural energies of living tend toward chaos. Physicists give it an imposing name, the second law of thermodynamics. Left to themselves, things tend to fall apart. The most well-constructed and well-organized household, if lived without house cleaning, straightening, uh, or lived in without house cleaning, straightening, And repair work in a very short time becomes disorderly, slovenly, and what some people would call unlivable. Most of us have routines that impose order upon these disorderly uh, energies by dusting, bed uh, making, weeding the garden, washing the dishes, carrying out the trash. Sooner or later, try as we might, futility wins. The house falls down, our bodies fall apart. And it doesn't mean we give up trying, but it does mean we need a solution which all our trying won't solve. If Christ has not been raised, Paul tells us, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised and only in this life do we have hope in Christ, then we are all people most to be pitied. As true as those statements are, it should not be missed that if Christ has not been raised, life is vain for everyone, and everyone is to be pitied. Christians just more than others. On the other hand, there's a popular idea in what I'll call sentimental Christianity. It goes something like this. What have you got to lose? If you become a Christian and it turns out to be false, then you've lost nothing. And if you don't become a Christian and it turns out to be true, you've lost everything. Well, on the surface, that seems reasonable, but it's very problematic, actually. It posits a version of Christianity that costs you nothing. In other words, if it doesn't cost you anything, why wouldn't you get it? It'd be like a life insurance salesman showing up at your door saying, listen, I've got a million-dollar life insurance policy for you. And they say, well, "What? Will it cost? well, it costs actually nothing. Well, don't I need to like pay some premiums? Nope. costs you nothing. Well, where do I sign up? I mean, I'm not like hoping to die, but really? I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. And that's how we present in that sentimental version of Christianity the gospel, which, of course, I would say is a false understanding of the gospel. And if you're here today and you've embraced a version of Christianity that costs you nothing, I want to challenge the assumption that it is, in fact, Christianity. If it doesn't cost you anything, I would argue that it is not christianity you might say well i thought the gospel your salvation is free it is it'll cost you everything though it will indeed cost you everything you couldn't earn it you couldn't buy it if you wanted to so it has to be free but it will cost you everything christians are most to be pitied according to paul if christ has not been raised because they have bet everything on the resurrection. They have bet everything on the resurrection. They have set out on a journey carrying a sign that reads resurrection or bust. We're all in or we're not in. If Christ has not been raised, remember, all people are to be pitied because all lives are in vain. The best we can offer them, as Paul says in verse 32 later in the chapter, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Christians are more to be pitied than unbelievers because if there is no resurrection because they've given up something. They've given up some of the eating, drinking, and being merry for resurrection. They've said resurrection or bust. There's a cost to following Christ which cannot be minimized. It's deceptive to minimize it. Faith in Christ calls us to a different kind of living. We're going to explore this in the resurrection of Christ, under three headings, everything is futility, the resurrection transforms everything, and the resurrection transforms you. Under that first heading, everything is futility. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, the preacher begins that book. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. That's the Christian standard uh, Bible. And and I think it captures the sense of that verse the best, futility, absolute futility. The word used here uh, in the the, uh, Greek version of the the Old Testament in in Ecclesiastes 1-2 is from the same root which Paul uses in our text in verse 17 when he said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. The Hebrew word that it translates was originally used as the name for Abel. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? It's Habel. That's his name. We say Abel. His life, his righteous life, seemed to have been futile. What's the use of living righteously? The question could be asked. Abel died, Cain lived. His life, Abel, was like a vapor. Interestingly, the word for vapor is hobble, Abel. His life was like a vapor, here and then gone. It seems futile or maybe meaningless. If there is no resurrection, Abel's life is to be pitied more than Cain's, for he lived sacrificially and died young, while Cain did as he pleased and lived long. If there is no resurrection, Cain's life is also ultimately futile, but he has more fun along the way, at least. He followed the you only live once philosophy. We get a glimpse at the futility of life in John 19, In verses 38 through 42. The scene takes place just down the hill from the cross in a tomb, in a garden. We read there later. This is right after Christ died. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. While Pilate's or with Pilate's permission, he took or he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy-five pounds, or in the original, a hundred litras or a hundred Roman pounds just equals 75 of ours. But the, it's a big number, that's the point. A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes to cover the stench of death, a quantity that, that really only a king would be buried with. You, you read stories of kings getting this kind of amount of myrrh and aloes poured upon them. It says in verse 40, Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Two very wealthy, very powerful men do everything they can to preserve the dead body of Jesus, but it is futility. It still could not have covered the stench of death or prevented the decay of Jesus' body. Apart from resurrection, nothing we do Work out, eat right, color our hair, or pump our skin full of Botox, whatever it is. Nothing we do can ultimately succeed. It's futile. It's futile. Why? Why all this futility? Well, it began in a garden. A place where nothing was futile. A place, though, where Adam and Eve rejected God as king. You've heard of it, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had been called to rule over the earth and everything in it as God's image bears. Adam was called to be a gardener, to work the garden and take care of it. That's what a gardener does, right? Instead of using that authority to rule as God would for the benefit of and good of creation... Adam and Eve functioned selfishly and brought death. There in that garden when they did so, death came upon all their heirs. Everything now ends in futility. This is true for everyone if Christ has not been raised. And you you capture this story in the book of Genesis. It's it's interesting because Genesis begins with the creation of a paradise where man is, is placed, humanity is put in this garden, and it ends With humanity in a box, a coffin. The very last verse of Genesis. Which is telling because that's the storyline of the book. From life to death. What we need is a new garden and a new gardener. And that leads us to our second heading. Resurrection transforms everything. Look with me beginning in chapter 19 of John and verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. No death had ever been there before. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene Went to the tomb and saw the stones, or saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Don't miss that line. <laughs> Thinking he was the gardener. Oh, indeed he was. <laughs> Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you put him? And I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he what, what he uh, she told them that he had said these things to her. John the apostle was masterful with symbolism. I mean, he is the author not only of this gospel, but of also the apocalypse, the revelation. And throughout his gospel, there are repeated allusions to the book of Genesis. I mean, you, there, there are, I don't know that I could even count them all because there's so many. I'm sure I haven't even seen them all, but I've seen plenty. And time won't allow me to make all of those connections, but just a couple will be worth noting. I mean, of course, it begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was with God in the beginning. Everything was made by him. So it picks up on that first line of the book of Genesis and tells the creation story. But then all of a sudden the Word becomes flesh. Or how about in John chapter 9 where there's a man born blind from birth. And he comes along and Jesus sees a man and he bends down and he spits in the dirt and he makes mud and he puts it in the guy's eyes. And then he tells him to go wash and when he does he can see. Why? Because he's got eyes now. This reminds us of the Lord God forming the Man, the Adam, from the dust of the ground, the Adama, which was mixed with the water of the river of life, the odd. So you have the odd wetting the Adama and you get the Adam. Great little story in the book of Genesis chapter 2. Captures the essence and Jesus is now making eyes from the Adama, the dust of the ground mixed with the odd, the river of life that came from his mouth and flows from within him. And he creates eyes and puts them on the man when he's finished, he can see. On the first day of the week, by the way, the first day of the week is Sunday. I know a lot of calendars these days start with Monday. <laughs> but the first day of the week is Sunday. We don't worship our work, we worship the Savior. It's Sunday. And why, why is he raised on the first day of the week? Because everything gets to start over again. It's the first day of the week because the world was created beginning with, and God said, and it was day one. On that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene goes to the garden in which there is a tomb, but the stone has been rolled away. After running and telling Peter what she sees, she returns and is standing outside the tomb weeping, finally looking in. She sees these two angelic beings who apparently weren't there when Peter and John were in the tomb, or at least not visible. And she begins a conversation with them. Then she turns around and sees Jesus, but as noted, thinks he's a gardener, and he is. Just as Adam was the gardener, not the garden owner, so Jesus is the new Adam of the new creation, His father, he tells us, is the vine dresser in chapter 15. That means the vineyard owner. He's the one who owns the vineyard. Jesus, if you will, is the gardener in in the role of a man taking the place of the old Adam who brought death. He's the new Adam who tends the garden and brings life. And if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. Thanks be to God. We are his garden. Jesus is called... The firstborn, eight times in the New Testament. It's an interesting expression. He is Mary's firstborn. Okay, that's physically true, right? So he's Mary's firstborn, that's one. But then twice he's called the firstborn from the dead. That's resurrection. Firstborn from the dead. I think all the others really relate to this aspect. The firstborn of creation he's called once, right next to being called the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn of many brothers once. And three times, he's just generically referred to as the firstborn. The firstborn. as a a title that encapsulates those other ideas. You see, just as Adam was the firstborn of the old creation, Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. To be in Adam was to be in sin, and therefore under the reign of sin. Hence, in Adam, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22... In Adam all die. To be in Christ is to be in righteousness, and therefore under the reign of righteousness or the rule of Christ. Therefore in Christ all shall be made alive, that verse finishes. Forty days after the resurrection was the ascension, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and rules over everything in heaven and on earth. During those 40 days, Christ Jesus, or you might say King Jesus, that's what the word Christ refers to, the promised coming King, Christ Jesus talked to the disciples, it tells us in Acts chapter 1, about the kingdom of God. Now that's interesting. What's the most important thing he's got to talk about? He's going to be here 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension. What's he going to talk about? His empire. The kingdom of God. Why? Because in verse 9 of Acts 1, He ascends to the right hand of the Father where He will rule. But not a rule of death, a rule of righteousness. And all who enter Christ, enter into that kingdom and under His rule. When Christ, through whom all things were made, when He died, if if the Creator of everything dies, then everything created dies in Him. Everything died that first Good Friday. When Christ was raised to life, all are raised to life in Him. See, with the resurrection of Christ from that tomb, the only answer to the futility of death and dying that every human being experiences, the only answer has been addressed because now a new creation has begun. The old creation has surely found its end, but the new creation has begun. Christ's resurrection is the proof that death has been conquered and that all who are in him will be raised to life. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 in our text and surrounding it. Now, while the potentiality of this is real for all, the actuality of it requires faith. The potentiality is real for all. In Christ, everything died. In Christ, everything's made alive. But only those who through faith are joined to Christ experience that resurrection, that new life as a reality. Everything in this creation is subjected to futility. It will die, but in Christ, everything is recreated. This is why we have a garden scene at the place of the resurrection a gardener, and all. Everything starts again right there. That leads to our third heading. The resurrection transforms us. The resurrection transforms us. Since being joined to Christ brings us out from under the authority of Adam, the authority of sin and death, and under the authority of Jesus, the authority of righteousness and life, then it changes everything about us. So we come here today to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but if we leave here thinking that that's an event that has really little to do with me, we miss the point entirely. It has everything to do with you and me. Baptism, they both die and are raised in Him as part of the new creation. Paul talks about this. We'll read it in a moment. But baptism is the symbolic burial of each of us who are joined to Christ. We are joined with Him in baptism into his death as we're buried and in his resurrection as we're raised up to new life it's a symbolic act that shows what is taking place the old us dies but the new creation begins as we come out of that water we're a part of that new creation therefore paul writes if anyone is in christ the new creation has come the old is gone the new is here Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the way it reads literally, there's just in Greek, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Boom. We supply the, he is a new creation, which is fine, but it's just, it's that stark. If anyone's in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Thanks be to God. As Paul put it in our opening text in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Indeed, if Christ has not been raised, nothing is new and there is no hope, but since He has, then you are not still left under the power and authority of your sin. You are not still in your sins, thanks be to God. Isn't that good news? The resurrection, listen... The resurrection is not a single event in history that happened once, and that's it. Since the resurrection, Christ is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. It's the first of many resurrections, if you will, in Him. Romans 6 puts it this way in verses 3-7, through Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in death, a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Or as Colossians, Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And Paul goes on in Romans 6 to talk about how now that we've been raised with Him to new life, we're to walk in the new resurrection life of Christ now. We're to live as new creations now. Amen. Whoever that was from, thank you for that amen. (laughs) It's good. You see, it is only by being joined to Christ that we take the journey past the futility of the fallen, broken creation into the flourishing garden of the new creation. It's not a safe journey if you aren't in Christ. You have to be in Christ. Buckled in, locked down, strapped up, in Christ. Living the life of the resurrection, the new creation, I must warn you, is not all glory. Hear me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where we opened. In verse 19, which we read, Paul says that if there is no resurrection, then we are of all people most to be pitied. The only reason that that could be possible is if in following Christ, we willingly choose a sacrificial lifestyle. It has to be that we willingly choose it because everybody, believer or unbeliever, has suffering. Everybody has things that happen to them. Now, how we deal with it can be different. But at the end of the day, We are to be most pitied because we have willingly sacrificed something if Christ has not been raised. Just a a little further down in that passage, Paul illustrates this. He says, as for us, speaking of him and his team, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with... No more than human hopes, what have I gained? I don't know what kind of beast he was fighting, but it was clearly serious. Could have been symbolic of something that I'm certain they understood it. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. To, To put it in terms that sports fans will understand, to answer the question why sacrifice as we do? Why do difficult things? Why suffer? Well, we aren't fans that only need to watch games to make it to the Super Bowl. See, I'm a Bucks fan. A couple years ago, they made it to the Super Bowl and won. You know how much that cost me? <laughs> Nothing. I got to enjoy the ride all the way there. That's not true for the team. They were out there in August in Florida heat in their summer workouts and their preseason games. And man, they, they have to discipline their bodies. They have to sacrifice. They suffer, and indeed they do, to win that trophy. Okay. Well, we're not like the fan as Christians. We enter into the game and we must discipline ourselves. It is a choosing to die, believing that we will be raised to new life. And I'll be honest with you, this is hard stuff to sell. I mean, you know, I, I've been in sales. I've sold all sorts of things. Sales is easy. I remember when I first went into sales, I'd been pastoring for a while, and I went into sales making all sorts of money, and someone said, wow, you must be really good with rejection. I said, rejection? I haven't experienced any of that since I've been in sales. That's <laughs> That's easy. That's easy stuff. I don't want a copier. Oh, too bad. I don't feel personally rejected like that. You know, there are a lot of things that I do feel rejected with, but I didn't find them in sales, okay? And this is hard to sell. I can't sell this. You see, we're all willing to sign up for resurrection, so long as the dying part is no more than 30 minutes at the altar. I'm good to go. Sign me up. After many years of ministry, Eugene Peterson wrestling with the fact that he hasn't had much success at getting people to buy into the the sacrificial discipline that is necessary as a path to Christlikeness, he tells the following story. He says, I've not exactly been ignored. In fact, I've been treated with much appreciation. But more often than not, it feels like kindly condescension. Pastors tell me that they cannot make it with such an agenda. People won't put up with it. Congregations will not put up with it. Not long ago, a pastor told me that I was wasting my time on this. There was no challenge to it. It was about as exciting as standing around watching paint dry. I suggested to him that most of our ancestors in both Israel and the church have spent most of their time watching the paint dry. That the persevering, patient, unhurried work of growing up in Christ has occupied the center of the church's life for centuries. And that this American marginalization of that is, well, American. He dismissed me. He needed, he said, a challenge. I took it from his tone and manner that a challenge was by definition something he could be Something that could be met and accomplished in 40 days. That's all the time, after all, that it took Jesus. Little sarcasm there. (laughs) Living into the new creation. Experiencing the resurrection life of Jesus ourselves. Allowing it to transform us. Living into the new creation. Beginning with our baptism is not a quick task. The things Christ calls us to will cost us dearly. If there is no resurrection, we are of most people most miserable. Or of all people most miserable. But there is a resurrection. Christ has been raised. You see, Paul understood that the dilemma if Christ had not been raised. But the reason he was willing to suffer so much... It was because one day when he was traveling to persecute Christians, he ran into the resurrected Christ. And oh, how that changed everything in his life. Suddenly, he was willing to embrace a share in the sufferings of Christ in order that he might experience the resurrection life of Christ. Thanks be to God. Christ has triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. We can now live by faith in the resurrection, which will bring about transformed lives as we submit ourselves to Christ's ways. Again, Peterson captures the essence of this. He says, quote, the practice of resurrection. He's got a a book called Practice Resurrection. I thought that's that's keen. (laughs) That's what we are called to do. Practice Resurrection. You might call it practice new creation. He says, the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus' life. This practice is not a vague wish upwards, but comprises a number of discrete but interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way of life. Which, by the way, may look like watching paint dry to other people. But real life in a world preoccupied with death and the devil. See, what we often want, we want a Solomon kind of king. You see, Solomon going to reign. Do you remember what was said? Solomon was the slave driver and the people won't put up with it anymore. And that's ultimately what led to the division of Israel. But we, you know what, as long as we can show people that they're building a great kingdom, you can get them to do all sorts of things. But they get to the end and they realize, this was all for you. But when you just put before people, not an earthly kingdom, but Christ-likeness, suffering on behalf of others, they think that feels like paint drying because that other thing, But we can build a great kingdom. That's where Peterson gets his expression. Well, I was in the middle of that somewhere. Or did I already read the rest of that quote? Let's see here. This practice is not a vague wish upwards, yes, but com- uh, comprises a number of discrete but interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way of life, real life, in a world preoccupied with death and the devil. The resurrection transforms us when we make choices to die to ourselves, to die by sacrificial living, to die by laying down our lives for others because our assurance because of our assurance that we will be raised. Just as Christ made himself nothing and was highly exalted, so we have the same mind in us. On closing just a couple of thoughts. Paul's version of Christianity was costly. Of course, he got that from Jesus, which is why he could say that if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. For Paul and for Christians, it is resurrection or bust. Now, for those who don't know Christ, then all you have is futility. Sure, you can eat, drink, and be merry, but it will all end in a tomb. You can pour all the spices you want on top of that body in the tomb and it will still decay and rot. And no amount of money or power can keep your body from decaying and everything becoming nothing. This morning, I received an email from David French, in a little uh, subscription to the French Press, in which he writes this, and I thought this was insightful. He says, It is Christ's defeat of death that makes the entire upside-down kingdom of God viable. I'm sure glad I read it this morning. It belonged in the sermon somewhere. It is Christ's defeat of death that makes this entire upside-down kingdom of God viable. If there is nothing beyond this earth, why should the last be first? Why should we love our enemies? How could one possibly say that we gain our lives by losing our lives? But Christ has been raised, and that makes the upside-down kingdom of God make sense. To know Christ, according to Paul... Is to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. Are you living into the resurrection life of Christ? Are you living as one who is a part of the new creation? Have you packed and determined resurrection or bust? I invite you to if you have not. We gather here this Easter morning, but we gather every first day of the week, every Sunday morning because of the resurrection. Because that is the beginning of the new creation. And we mark time by our return to the garden where we walk together with God in the cool of the day and we stake our claim for the week, resurrection or bust. That is what our week is set by. That is what starts our week. That is what determines our week. We worship a risen Savior and we fellowship together with Him because the new creation has begun. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these things, each of us here, may we all take an inventory of our lives and ask the question, are we living into the new creation? Are we living into the resurrection of Christ? Are we willing to die in order that we might live? Have we set our course, resurrection or bust? Help us to be a people, Lord that live that reality in Jesus' name. Amen.